welcome to Life in the Tax Lane, the June edition. Summertime. It's the summertime edition. Everybody's happy and enjoying it so far. Got that, Hugh? <laughs> <laughs> let's get going talk about some employees. Well, let's talk about some people who aren't going to be too happy. Uh, this is a fight we get in with CRA a lot. And what we had here was a fellow who had a parking pass. He worked at the airport. He was a flight attendant. Mm -hmm. And they probably had all the right answers when they went to court, or so they thought. Uh, he was able to show that public transit wasn't a viable alternative. He wasn't going to be able to get to the airport reliably. And uh, the employer had testified. They need flexible, reliable, punctual employees to make their business run properly. And those of us who sat in the airport while the flight crew isn't there probably appreciate Never that. Never happens. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's all too easy. And they said, that's why we give our employees parking passes. Well, unfortunately, the court said, wait a minute. The collective agreement says you have to provide parking passes. It doesn't say why, and generally, collective agreements provide for benefits for employees. Mm -hmm. So that wasn't a good sign. Uh, and you didn't show us that you didn't do this for an employee perk. Everybody's got to get to work. One way or the other, this guy mm -hmm. would have had to get there, and he would have probably had to buy a parking pass because you showed us he couldn't take public transit. Oh, great, give me my own evidence and use it against me. Uh, and he didn't give us any evidence that the guys who drive to work are any more flexible or reliable than the guys who get there from some other means. And uh, it was pointed out flight attendants don't make all that much, so a car is a big investment. They probably didn't all have their own transportation. Mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately, the result was you would have incurred the cost one way or the other. Having your employer pay for it was an economic benefit. Commuting to work is personal, not business. So he was taxable on the value of the parking pass. I mean, this tax court decision is just for the one taxpayer, but I would uh, suggest that it's going to probably impact all the other uh, flight attendants. I would for guess, that considering they were fighting over tax on five hundred and four dollars, uh, <laughs> there was probably some backing from the employer on this. Have yep. fun on your next Air Canada Jazz flight. <laughs> the attendee may not be very happy. <laughs> <laughs> no, but let's talk about another issue uh, that is much broader. We're talking about discounts that employees may get on merchandise that their employer provides. Just recently we had a CRA document released uh, that appeared to provide a little bit of a different commentary on this employee discount. Essentially this document says that where an employee receives a discount because of their employment, that discount would be a taxable benefit. Uh, pretty much full stop. And this is a departure from what CRA has previously said, whereby uh, in the past only certain scenarios would render a taxable benefit. Um, so heads up there, uh, not all of CRA's document is consistent to this effect, uh, but there is a shift and it is out there. Why don't we talk about the next one? Uh, you're a financial professional, so you might be a CFA, a CPA, uh, a CFP. This could have implications for us. We had a tax court case that came out. It was a designated CFA who was the co-head of institutional trading at Raymond James. He had over 25 years of experience, so the concept was he had his own trading accounts, his personal accounts. Mm -hmm. He was buying and selling, and the question was, was he earning, were the gains that he experienced, were they on account of capital, so taxed at a half rate, or on full account of income, so taxed fully? Mm -hmm. Now, there are a number of criteria that CRA and the courts will look at to, to help make that determination. They'll look at the frequency of the transactions, 
the duration of holdings, nature and quantity of service of securities held, the time that he spent on the activities, his financing, where did the cash come from, particular knowledge possessed. I mean, he is a financial professional, um, so he's got a lot of good information about uh, that specific trading in general. And they also looked at two additional uh, items or factors, the intention and consistent reporting. Well, in this case, Hugh, he had 38 purchases and 50 sales within a 10-month period. Um, he made $550,000, and uh, the cost basis of these assets which he purchased and sold was about $2.5 million. The court took a look at this and said, well, hey, based on your, 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 your history of buying and selling, um, you held them for a very short amount of time. 50 days on average was your average hold. And uh, I basically see that your intention was to sell these things that you purchased at a profit as soon as a reasonable return uh, could be gotten. So that is an indication that you were buying it as part of essentially a business. I don't know, Hugh, any thoughts on that one? Well, I'm just dreaming about getting a 20% rate of return on my investments. <laughs> well, that looks pretty good but really the test is did yeah. you buy them for resale and a lot of people don't recognize that uh, and we know from past commentary Joe that CRA has been looking at RRSPs and tax-free savings accounts which are not tax-free if we're carrying on a business so this is probably a good case from CRA's perspective mm -hmm. that uh, they took one with good facts, and now they've got a case precedent to point at going forward. You know, Katie, I, sorry, I just wanted to mention two other things here which might tweak some of our interests. This individual did short sell some assets, and the court noted that that activity, even though you reported the earnings from it on account of income, so fully taxable, it also did indicate that his overall uh, plan was to basically buy and sell mm -hmm. quickly. So short selling could be a problem for you. And they also did mention he, on average, spent 45 minutes per day uh, reading investment type articles uh, which could have uh, contributed to his knowledge uh, base when, when making these trades. So a couple different items to take a look at there. Taxpayer loses but it's a good interesting case. That's right. Fully taxable and all the income earned. Hugh, do you have any better news for us? <laughs> well, probably not. Uh, let's, let's switch gears though. Uh, we've got a, probably not new rules but some new applications. And anytime we add an international element to any issue, we get tax complexities. And I see this quite a bit in practice where there's uh, one of the kids of a deceased individual, for example, mm -hmm. is living outside of Canada. And we know that creates a lot of issues. We've got one uh, that hasn't come up that often, but maybe you've got a trust, an estate, and you're looking for three criteria. One, does it have that non-resident person who's a beneficiary? Two, does it earn what's called designated income? Now, that's income from carrying on business. I don't see a lot of trust mm -hmm. carry on business, certainly not a lot of estates. Does it earn income from real estate in Canada, rental income, royalties? Boy, that happens far more often, in, right. certainly in a state or testamentary trust. And three, we're claiming a deduction for amounts that get paid out or are payable to the beneficiaries, which is pretty common. And effective with 2016, we lost the ability to say, we don't care that we paid it out. We don't want to deduct it. We want to be taxed in the trust. Added to that, we also got the graduated rate of state rules. And a lot of the things that used to not be an issue for testamentary trusts now apply unless it's the graduated rate of state. And one of them is a special tax on income in those circumstances. That's 40% of the income. It's paid by the trust. So if you've got those factors, for sure you want to be looking at your tax situation and uh, maybe you want to be considering that well in advance as you're preparing your will. Yeah. 
So I just want to talk about another uh, issue that came up uh, with respect to non-resident individuals. In this case, it was an individual, think about a farmer. He retires, he has had enough farming and droughts and, and floods, and he wants to move down to the States. He becomes a resident of the States, but he still has his family farm corporation. He knows he can transfer it to his kids on a tax-deferred basis. So he does that. We think we're done. Not so much. This uh, discussion here, this technical interpretation, talks about additional filing requirements, even if we don't own tax. So just another example. Don't owe tax. Oh, don't owe tax. Okay. <laughs> me. So another reminder, you got a non-resident involved. you got to get those antennas up and start thinking about other issues. Let's talk a little bit about build basis accounting. So this would be the, the, the professionals, mostly lawyers, and I'd say accountants would be the two big yep. targets here. Um, basically, we've got some new rules which have come out of the most recent budget saying that we cannot value our WIP at zero. We have to include a cost, include that in income. Uh, there's been a FAQ released recently by CRA talking a little bit about that, and they talk specifically about contingency fees. So let's say you're a lawyer and you're going to get paid if a certain event happens. You win the case and that injury payout is X amount of dollars, you get a percentage there. The whole concept here is if you're billing in that way, does it have value? Is there a certain amount of income that you need to include? And CRA in their new release essentially says um, if certain conditions are met, no. No, there is no inclusion there. So you definitely want to check out this FAQ to see if it applies yeah, to you. Yeah, a little bit of good news. That's right. Well, I think the bad news, Joe, is that uh, a lot of practitioners have looked at this and said, well, that sure sounds good. Yes. But there's no legal basis for yeah. it. <laughs> Hopefully we'll get clarification as this moves through the legislative process, uh, assuming that is finance's intent. Yeah. So final item here, small business deduction multiplication. We've talked about this uh, quite a bit in the past. We have an update. Basically, if we have a farming corporation making a sale to a co-op in the past, they wouldn't have access to the small business deduction. Or may not have. Or may not have. New legislation says in many cases they will. Good news there. Take a look at the details. The really good news on that to me, Kate, is finance is looking at the issues. Yes. Hopefully this is only the first step. See you next month. Life in the Tax Lane is presented by Video Tax News. The Video Tax News team has been supplying practical tax information to accountants and tax professionals for over 30 years. This Canadian-based company presents live and video seminars to thousands of tax professionals relating to both personal and corporate tax. Learn more at videotax.com. That's B-I-D-E-O-T-A-X.com. The preceding information is for general educational purposes only and deals with dynamic, time-sensitive and complex matters that may not apply to particular facts and circumstances. Information provided should not be relied upon as a substitute for specialized professional advice in connection with any particular matter. For more details, see videotax.com disclaimer. Copyright Video Tax News Inc. 2017. All rights reserved.